The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to the Crowdmakers, inside the C-suite of sports and entertainment. The definitive podcast on the inner workings of the business side of professional sports, concerts, and live events. These are the people that are shaping the new landscape of the industry, the executives that are creating the new paradigm for live entertainment. These are the inside conversations you won't hear anywhere else. These are the Crowdmakers. Support for the Crowdmakers comes from ISBI 360, the digital training network that uses micro-learning and spaced repetition to form new habits of success in sales, service, leadership, and more. Created by sports and entertainment industry experts for the industry. Learn more at ISBI360.com. And now, here's your host for the Crowdmakers, Bill Gertine. Welcome to the Crowdmakers. I'm Bill Gertine, and with me today is Mike Taylor. Really grateful to have him here with us. He is Senior Director of what we know as TeamBo. That stands for Team Marketing and Business Operations of the NBA. Mike, thanks so much for joining us here on the Crowdmakers. Bill, it's my pleasure. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Cool. So a lot of things been going on during the pandemic. What have you been doing to better yourself? Is there a book you've got on your nightstand, some sort of routine that you've started? What's been going on in your world? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I've really tried to um, kind of own my day and, and make each day productive in its own right. So, you know, working from home, luckily within Teambo, we're kind of used to working remotely and, and, and being able to be productive. So that part wasn't that much of an adjustment, but kind of making sure to have some separation between work and life and, you know, knowing when to close the laptop, knowing when to uh, go for a run or read a book or, or something to take your mind off of, uh, you know, figuring out how to get fans back in our arenas. So I, I've been um, on a reading spree. I, I love to read. So I, I've been doing a ton of reading. I like to mix it up. So, you know, maybe a, a book around business or leadership and then, maybe some sort of autobiography about someone, and then maybe just something random, a novel or something kind of outside the box to just take my mind off of things. Cool. Where is home for you around New York City? Uh, so I live in, in Manhattan, so the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Very good. Well, there's been uh, a little bit of real estate available there, I understand, so you probably have a little more room to spread out. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not bad. I, I've been lucky to have a, a space that's, that doesn't feel like a closet. I have some friends that live in uh, some tight quarters, so I, I've been lucky. Most everyone in sports can tell you where they were on that day in March when they first learned that things were going to be shut down. Take us through where you were at that moment and what was the situation? Yeah, it's a great question. So that that week, I'll take a step back, that week we were preparing and, and we saw just how things were changing and we're actually preparing the Golden State Warriors were going to play a game without fans um, a few days later. So we were just preparing the league to be prepared to play without fans. And what would that look like from a communication standpoint? What would be our message to season ticket holders and groups and premium accounts? So we were, you know, crafting all of this communication and just having ourselves prepared 
for, you know, what we saw was coming. And then I remember, you know, getting home late that night, I believe it was March 11th, and, and got an email that, you know, there are some things happening in Oklahoma City and, you know, the, the season has been suspended into further notice. And, and it was a long night of, you know, teams having a lot of questions and wondering what it means and, and fans, of course, blowing up teams to figure out, you know, what the, what does that mean for their money and what is the league going to do? And, and so, you know, it was um, – an interesting time and there wasn't a precedent for it. There wasn't a playbook that you can go back to, to kind of figure out what's been done in the past. So, you know, we had to kind of figure things out on the fly and, and, you know, made for kind of quite the learning experience. Teambo in general has a very broad job description, lots of other duties as assigned to make sure that everyone is doing best practices, but no one had a playbook for this. What did you find yourself really wishing you had more experience in or what did you have to become during this time as a team rep to help your teams and to help the NBA? Man, I, I think, um, what do I wish I would have had? I, I would say uh, maybe a little bit more of a, a crystal ball to know um, one that, you know, is coming sooner and, and kind of what it looks like on the outside of it. You know, I think right now, I, I was explaining it to someone that it feels like you're putting a puzzle together without seeing the picture. Um, you're just kind of trying to figure it out. And, and so I think, um, you know, the spirit of what Timbo has been and kind of what David Stern envisioned it being is, you know, kind of one where we are an extension of teams and, and we're constantly adding value. And so I think right now the focus has been just how can we add value? How can we be, kind of an addition, an extension of the team's strategic thought. Um, so whether that's, you know, figuring out how to still engage with their fans, figuring out how to uh, plan for this upcoming season, uh, or figuring out, you know, how to keep their staff engaged and how to build morale and keep morale going and save and retain a lot of our top talent. You know, I, I try to see myself and when I have conversations with our teams, you know, every conversation is different and every market has a different need. Um, so kind of keeping that that North Star of add value, consistently try to add value wherever it might be for whatever team that I'm helping at the time. So many decisions needed to take place once the pandemic became a reality for everybody. Some were good decisions. Some, as you look back, eh, maybe not the best of decisions, but something had to be done. Some decisions had to be made. What's an example of a mistake you made early on and what did you learn from it? Well, it's a great question. Um, before we decided on playing in the bubble and what that looked like, I think there was kind of a, a time where we weren't communicating as much as our fans would have wanted before we had answers. And I think sometimes you hesitate to say anything when you don't have all the answers. And I think a lesson that we've learned is that you know, that transparency is really important to fans. Even if you don't have the answers they're looking for, it's okay to say, hey, I don't know, but I know that we're going to take care of you. And I know that once we figure things out, you're going to be the first one that I call to tell about it. So I think that's been a lesson that we've learned in terms of just the transparency of this unprecedented time is that might not have all the answers and that's okay, but fans just want to be a part of it. And they want you to over communicate 
to them to let you know kind of what you're thinking and where things might go. Yeah. The NBA has certainly been lauded as one of the most the, the leagues that are most likely to be looked at 20 years from now is the one that handled this the best. The bubble really went over extremely well. You crowned a champion, maybe some of the best games of NBA history in terms of the playoffs and the kind of, of quality basketball we saw. What was your involvement in the bubble and, and were you there at all? And, and was there any concern that you had personally uh, in them deciding to execute a plan like that? Great question. So I, I, I didn't have an opportunity to go and physically be in the bubble. Um, but did play a part in just kind of helping support our colleagues who were there. You know, I think I didn't have any concerns about what we were doing. I think one thing Adam Silver has, has shown throughout this process is that, you know, one, it's a collaborative, decisions are made collaboratively and, and he is listening to the experts and it's not based on revenue. Decisions, decisions aren't solely based on what makes the NBA the most money. It's really around how can we do things in a safe way? And how can we listen to the experts? What are they telling us? How can we bring them along into the process? So I think in terms of just seeing how decisions were made, it's really cool to see just how many different voices were brought to the table to help us kind of understand the best way to do it, the best plan to do it, the things that we have to be aware of and, and look out for, um, and, and also involving the players throughout the entire process through the PA. Um, so I think it was just a great lesson in, in just collaboration. Um, you know, I think in terms of what in Timo, what was our role, a variety of things around one, just pass, getting information to teams and, and helping them prepare to, you know, how can we engage with fans without them being able to go to games, right? And so kind of learning the things that we've done from like a virtual, you know, tapping into the virtual events, tapping into a lot of the different engagement opportunities and then you know, on the partnership side a ton of make goods were needed to to uh, be created for the you know partners that were expecting to have 41 home games in every market right so you know that's where we tended we innovated with some of the virtual signage that you saw on the court um, so kind of working with teams to establish the parameters around what that would look like and help them execute that for every single game. And then also we innovated with a new idea around virtual fans. And so if you were able to watch some of the games, you saw the fans that were in the screens. And so we worked with Microsoft, um, who created the technology, and then we worked with teams to help them engage their fan base with this opportunity and, and help execute. And so you know, this was a totally new idea that no one had ever done um, on the Microsoft side. And, and there were some kinks along the way that we had to help troubleshoot with our teams. Uh, but I think we've learned a lot of it. And a lot of things that we learned in Orlando, you're going to see come constant and, and become a part of our business moving forward. So I'm excited about some of those learnings. But that was kind of our role within the bubble and then also you know, my thoughts around it. So how many of those innovations can we expect to see going forward? What are those things that were done lightning fast? Uh, uh, will, how many of those will be carried over? What can we expect? Yeah, I definitely see a world around us tapping more into the virtual space, right? Whether it's something, you know, that 
goes along with having fans in the arena, if it's something that's maybe in place of at the beginning of a season, depending on kind of where the world is and where things are with the pandemic. So I, I do see us tapping more into that. And we've had discussions around the potential of what a virtual membership could look like as kind of a, a, another revenue source and another opportunity, you know, kind of playing into the fact that over 99% or 99% of our fans will never actually step into our arena. So creating something specifically for us to be able to kind of capitalize on that popularity that we have globally. So I think you'll see that become kind of a normal thing, a normal product that we tap into. I think you'll see a lot around some of the elements around the game itself. Um, I think you might see constant. I think there was a lot of um, great thoughts around the play-in tournament that that um, did. So you know, I think that's the one thing that we wanted to make sure that while we're in this pandemic and we're in this kind of making adjustments, let's also use it as an opportunity to you know challenge ourselves to think outside the box and to challenge that status quo. And and I'm excited for what the potential could be moving forward. You bring a unique perspective to your job because you played basketball yourself. You were in college at West Virginia State, graduated in 2004, and then you played pro basketball in Europe for a few years. Tell us about some of those memorable moments that that you had in those few years just out of school as a pro. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. First, you know, I've loved the game of basketball my whole life. So get the opportunity to you know go to Europe and live in these amazing cities um, all because of the game of basketball, you know, such a blessing. And you know, I got a chance to live in Amsterdam and Dusseldorf, Germany and Vienna, Austria. And, and, you know, it was just a cool experience for a, you know, 22 year kid to just be, you know, kind of traveling to these places that I may have never been to otherwise. It also was kind of what led me into my career outside of playing is that my, my third year playing in Europe, I became friends with some of the people that worked on the business side of the team I was playing for and started to get a sense of just what they were doing and how they were marketing us and selling tickets and, and all of this cool stuff, which led me to say, you know what, that's what I want to do next. And, and that kind of led me down the journey to exploring how can I you know, get back over to the States and, and start my career in sports business. And that's when we got a chance to meet. So in 2008, yeah. fast forward, you came home, started in ticket sales with the Chicago Bulls. Now, most of the time in those groups that you start in with, they're all college graduates. Most of them had graduated mostly from Big Ten schools because that's where the Bulls like to draft from and their, yeah. and their talent. And, and here you come, a few years older than most, with a little more life experience. <laughs> Describe being the elder statesman in the room during the, that first nine months with the Bulls. Yeah, it, it's funny that, um, you know, being 25, you're considered the elder statesman of inside sales. But uh, it's, it's true. You're right. You know, I, I kind of went into it knowing that, you know, and, and um, but at the same time, I, I also knew I had so much to learn. So there wasn't any advantage in terms of the business. I had never had a sales job before. I had never picked up a phone and called someone and asked them to buy something. So, you know, I went into it just, you know, kind of humbly of like, I need to learn as much as I can. Yeah, I've had some cool experiences. I, I've traveled the world, um, but I want to make this my career. So I really need to have success here. And so you know, I told myself, I'm going to take all of the training that they give me and, and you were involved in that. And I said, and I'm just going to outwork everyone around me. And if I have success, 
I'm going to stick around. If not, I'll figure out something else to do. And so, you know, I do think having some of that life experience, you know, may have helped me a bit with just knowing that I wanted to be there and, and knowing that, you know, through the adversity that might come, I could push through it because I had faced some adversity. I lived alone in a foreign country. Um, so I think maybe some of that stuff. And, and when you first graduate, I think it's a challenge a lot of recent graduates face is that, you know, they never really maybe went through adversity. You know, they always succeeded. They always got good grades, always, you know, were top of their class. And then, you know, you get into sales and it can, it can humble you, right? <laughs> so, you know, how do you deal with that? I think that kind of helped me. You know, I, I never got too high or got too low. Um, and, you know, it was a great experience for me. It's probably the best way I could have started my career. Well, it's really important to make sure not to too good, too high and too low, because there's a lot of lows and a lot of highs. And sometimes the highs don't come as often as you like when you're in sales. Exactly. So one of the things you do like to talk about to young people is building a brand for mm -hmm. yourself. Uh, the Bulls program, like many of the inside sales programs of the day, were just nine month engagements. And then you were on your own. If there were no positions available at the Bulls, you kind of had to fend your way and figure out what was past that. What was Mike Taylor's brand at that time? And how did you stand out to land the job in group sales at the Hawks in Atlanta? Yeah, I, I think for me, my brand at the time was one of, you know, I always tell people that like working hard is kind of the baseline, right? Like I think for the most part, you know, that's, that's a given. Everyone's going to do that. But, but I really treated it like a crab. And I was really curious around, you know, just the formula to get better. I felt like, you know, if I could ask a lot of questions, if I could hear other people on phone calls or meetings, that I could figure out kind of this formula that it takes to have success. And there was a lot of trial and error, you know, a lot of self-assessment. So I think one thing is that, you know, from day one to maybe day 60, I probably had the biggest jump of, you know, just skill level of growth, um, just because, even outside of the training the Bulls would give me, um, you know, I really, after each call, kind of self-assessed myself to, to kind of understand what did I do well? What was I comfortable with? Where was I uncomfortable? And I really made efforts to kind of change some of my weaknesses to strength. So, so I think one was just it, the brand for myself was not only someone that's going to work hard, but someone that's super coachable, someone that's really curious, really competitive. Um, and I think you add those up, uh, it, it made for success. And, and I really tried to not focus so much on the results, but I really tried to master the process and the fundamentals, which led to the success. So of course, you know, by the end of that eight months, I, I was one of the top sellers uh, on the board. But also, I think in terms of my brand, I was I did it with integrity and I did it as a good teammate as well. So always willing to help others, always willing to volunteer to help another department. If there was an opportunity, I really maximized the experience. Um, it, it got to know a lot of people in the organization. Um, so I think the, that brand was just, he's just a good, a genuine good person that puts up the numbers that we ask uh, and does it the right way. We'll be back for the second half right after this. Hi, this is Bill Gertine. I've been training the ticket sales departments of sports and entertainment for almost 20 years, and I love what I do. But everywhere I went, the story was always the same. We loved what you did. You got us fired up. But after a while, we kind of lost the spark, and we went back to the same old, same old. 
Well, not anymore. ISBI 360 is the first and only digital training network created exclusively for the specific long-term career needs of sports and entertainment professionals. Our seven different unique certification programs include the fundamentals of success in the industry like ticket sales, sponsorships, social media, customer service, and leadership, all trained by industry experts like Brett Zalaski, Debbie Nolan, Misha Sher, and Seth Rabinowitz. ISBI 360 uses a unique four-stage learning process, including cutting-edge micro-learning videos, live recorded role plays, live coaching from industry experts, and an ongoing reinforcement program to make sure the learning sticks and forms the habits that your people need to grow and excel faster. Check out the two-minute demo at isbi360.com demo. That's isbi360.com demo. Building a better team starts with better training. Check out what's different about ISBI 360 today. It's going to be so difficult for graduates now coming out of school to prove that they can be that very same thing because many of them would not have the opportunities that you had this summer or that when you had your summer in 2008 to be able to do that. What are you telling young people today in terms of where they should start? And since they're a little behind the eight ball right now with sports, how is it that they may be able to, to brand themselves in a way that would stand out? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think one, you have to be open to wherever the opportunities are and you may not have kind of these parameters that you might've had in the past of, I only want to work in this sport or I only want to work in this city. Um, so I think you have to be open to kind of going where the opportunities are because there are still some opportunities out there. There are still, you know, people that are hiring and I do think it's going to ramp back up to where even more are, but I think you have to just be willing to kind of be open. I think the other thing is you have to stay consistent in your, kind of network, right? I think a lot of times students, they'll have kind of that first outreach to someone and they'll connect with someone and, and get to know them and ask them a couple questions, learn about their journey and it'll be great. And then you'll never hear from them again, right? And so, you know, staying consistent and keeping in touch with those people, checking in, getting updates, giving people updates on what you're doing, right? So I think that piece of it is kind of going a layer deeper in your networking um, and then I think the third piece will be just continuing to try to, you know, build your skill set and your craft. And, and that's through, you know, kind of being proactive and whether it's reading books or TED Talks or listening to podcasts or, you know, going to different seminars or whatever it might be. But really investing in yourself to build your skill set so that you can say that, you know, even though this was a six or seven months that I was waiting it didn't go in waste, right? I got better. I'm better than I was six months ago. I'm smarter. I'm sharper. I understand more. Um, and, and that will prepare you to not only get the opportunity, but be ready to thrive when you get it. That's great. So you spent a couple of years in Atlanta, had some success there. And then you moved to Detroit to do group sales at the Detroit Pistons. You really grew your career over six years to director of group sales. You grew the department from 29th in the league to number five in just three years, which is awesome. And this is at a time where the Pistons were kind of moving out of the Auburn Hills era and the Pistons were really kind of searching for an identity of their own. So the team wasn't doing you any favors to fill the stadium. How were you able to grow groups by that much when that dynamic of the team was changing so drastically from Auburn Hills to downtown? 
Yeah, I think um, I, I've gotten this question a couple of times and I always feel like I'm disappointing people in the answer because I, I feel like they expect groundbreaking, revolutionary things that we did. Uh, but the reality, Bill, is that we really just went back to the basics. And you know, when I first got the opportunity to oversee the department, I, I, I dove into the data and I wanted to understand what do we do well right now? And you know, for anyone that's in group sales, there are six categories that make up 80% of the group business in any industry. And, and that's businesses, you know, youth sports, schools, churches, performance groups, and nonprofits. And so for those six categories, I wanted to see how well are we performing in each of these and in the areas that we are struggling in, you know, let's really put a game plan together to understand what could we be doing better. And so we went on kind of a listening tour and we brought in all of these different categories, leaders to understand, hey, you know, we are the Pistons. We would love to work with you guys. What do you want to see from us? What type of programming would be compelling to you? you know, what, what do you want to see us do more of? And we built some platform programs together with some of those community leaders. And then when it was time for us to go to market with this stuff, we went back to them and said, hey, guess what? A lot of the ideas you brought to the table, we were able to include in this new program. Would love for you to be a part of it. And so we got so much support from people that, you know, had a hand in helping us build it and, and, and wanted to be a part of it. So we built, you know, an entire new platform around youth basketball. We built an entire new kind of B2B corporate program for us to tackle that market. We built some fun stuff around performance groups, right? And so once we saw like, okay, the areas that we're struggling in, we build a plan for those. The areas that we were doing okay in, how can we double down on those? How can we find more of that, right? And so we created a lot of kind of replica events based on things that were successful, right? Uh, so that was the other part of it. And then the people, we really, you know, kind of built out, here's what we want our, our department to stand for. And, you know, those that maybe didn't align with that kind of managed them out, right? And, and made sure that we had people that were, you know, willing to commit to what we were trying to build. And, you know, I, I was very lucky, Bill, that, you know, I had a team of, of rock stars that not only wanted to compete and wanted to be best in the league, but they were elite in the details and everything mattered. You know, the email follow-up, the, you know, meeting someone at a game, um, sending a thank you card. Like we really emphasize being elite in the details. And, you know, again, mastering that stuff leads to the results. And we never focused on the results. We never, you know, of course we, the goal is the goal. We're chasing it, right? But we said if we can focus on day-to-day -day, the things that we do, the result will come. Um, and I'm a huge believer in that. And, and, and luckily, the results bear fruit of, of that philosophy. Well, I don't – you said it wasn't very sexy. I really like it. I thought it was – you know, <laughs> it was a little grindy in terms of just kind of getting into the data. But I really like the listening tour and a lot of the things that you put behind that. Yeah. So yeah. group sales is really at a crossroads night right now with the pandemic. And many teams, of course, are trying to figure out their checkerboards and what that's going to look like for social distancing, whereas groups by their very nature are not socially distanced. 
What do you see and what's being discussed right now in the NBA with regard to the future of group sales? Yeah, it's still much is up in the air right now, Bill. Um, I, I think obviously in, in a social distance world right now, there's, you know, concern around what that means for groups. Um, I, I, on the other hand, there's also, you know, some thought around the perception of fans in the marketplace. And there's a certain comfort level that people have it, with their people. You know, they may not want to sit next to strangers, but if they come with a group of people that they know and trust and their family and friends, um, there's a sense that, you know, people are willing to do that. So, you know, maybe there's a potential where it's socially distanced pods of X number of seats and, and it's groups of families or groups of, you know, people that are comfortable being next to each other, right? Um, and maybe that's how you socially distance the arena in that form. Uh, again, these are all just different scenarios. Um, what we're seeing from the NFL, a lot of their pods are, are in twos and fours. And so maybe it's something where, you know, a group takes over a couple sections, but they are spaced out in twos and fours, but they own that entire section. Um, you know, and, and then the other thing I think is, is virtual. I think virtual group, the virtual theme night, the virtual event, I still see that something that we can tap into more um, to, to really continue to engage those different audiences um, and as kind of a, a stopgap until we get back to a little bit of normalcy with our capacity levels, which I'm still confident that we will get back to, uh, you know, very soon. Have you discussed what a virtual group event looks like? Yeah, so there's some teams that are already starting to explore it. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. The Boston Celtics are doing virtual dance clinics featuring their um, their dance team kind of leading and, and teaching, instructing. Again, with the performance groups being such a big category for us, you know, a great way for them to still tap into that and then giving them the opportunity to maybe perform um, and it's pre-recorded and, and maybe it's played during the game. Um, so, you know, I think that's one piece of it. There's some other teams, for example, the Pistons right now are doing kind of a virtual breast health awareness week, right? And, and they're doing a virtual panel discussion and they're doing some other activities every week. One, it helps them to kind of maintain the relationships with those particular categories that they're going to want to tap into later. And it helps kind of create some momentum to keep going. Uh, but again, I, I think we're learning on the fly here, and, and I love that teams are trying new things, testing, ideating, figuring out what works, and then kind of building from there. That's great. I want to shift the conversation a little bit to the Black Lives Matter movement and the terms in, in, of social injustice and things that are finally getting its just due. As a man who has really risen to a, a very high rank within the sports world, it has to feel as though it, this is a long time coming for you and there has to be some, some really great feelings, but also some mixed emotions about the movement, the extent to which the movement has had and where you would like to see that go in the future. Is there anything you would like to see personally from the movement against social injustice and Black Lives Matter from the NBA going forward? It's a great question. You know, I, I think... This summer has definitely been, um, you know, challenging for a lot of people, right? Um, just seeing what's happening in the country, 
Uh, it's been tough for a lot of, I would say, African-Americans to you know, see what's going on and then still have to focus on their job and how to be productive. And, and despite maybe all the things that are on their mind, um, just living in America, right? And so I, I do you know, commend the NBA for steps that they've taken. And not only the NBA, a lot of companies around the country that, that are trying to, one, figure out you know, how to do more and, and one, educate themselves on just what's happening and, and the plight that some people are, are facing in this country and, and using their influence and power to be intentional about making change. And, and I think there's a long way to go. I think there's a lot more a lot of organizations can do, uh, but I think it's progress to one, acknowledge and, and to one kind of start to look within to say, what can we be doing more? How have we been part of the problem and how can we be part of the solution? So, you know, I, I would challenge everyone to kind of think of it in that way of, of what can you do in your own lane to be impactful uh, moving forward. That's great. Beyond that movement that's happening, what do you think this unique situation in history is giving sports an opportunity to do or to be that may never come again? Is there a window that exists right now to change or improve something right now that you see? Yeah, I think it's never been more evident that the power of sports to bring people together um, and the power of sports to impact change, right? Not only just looking at you know, are, are looking at the NBA and, and, you know, the Milwaukee Bucks, for example, you know, it, it was pr a proud moment for me to see them stand up um, and, and really decide to take a stand. And, I, you know, it was, you know, put a lot of things at stake. You know, there was even my own professional uh, <laughs> livelihood, right, it was at stake in terms of that. But in that same vein, you know, it bigger than basketball and it's bigger than you know my own personal gain from from working but so much can happen and in, in terms of you know the influence to be able to get you know on the phone with the governor or get on the phone with lawmakers right and to be able to kind of share here's what we want to see and, and and even kind of bringing nba owners to the table to say here's how we would love for you to exert your influence to help move this cost forward and to put some real weight behind it to see action. And so, you know, I think there's a time where, you know, athletes have these platforms to, you know, really create the, the, the positive things that we want to see. And, and even the voting campaign right now, right, you're seeing so many athletes really speak out on the importance of getting registered to vote, completing the census um, and voting, right? And, and this is, Kind of a nonpartisan, you know, non-political, non—you know—kind of. I, I would say making people angry initiative, right? Uh, something, but so important, right? To to can keeping the the momentum going, and it's going to have to go even beyond this presidential election. You know, there's a variety of elections that we're going to have to, you know, keep that same mindset and really challenge people to vote. But it's just been very cool to see athletes and and, and people of power use their platform to kind of bring awareness to things that really matter and to see us take steps in, in, in the right direction and, and more to come and more needs to be done. But you know, I've been proud to watch. Cool. Well, I have a little bit of a segment at the end here. We call the rapid fire questions. So one at a time, you get to answer these right off the top of your head. You ready? 
Let's do it. Favorite binge watch during the pandemic? I would say Ozark. Uh, oh, I recently yeah. got Netflix in, in the last few months, and Ozark was my first watch. I hope season four comes out sooner than later. Yeah, same here. Besides sports, the one thing you have missed most during COVID? Travel. Airplane travel. Yeah, that was your life until <laughs> yeah. just a few months ago. It, it, you know, for work and even outside of work, you know, I, I miss, um, you know, Caribbean islands is, is what I would probably add to that. The board game you never thought you'd pull out of the drawer in 2020. Um, me and my girlfriend have played a lot of Scrabble. Okay. Favorite musical artist on your workout mix? Favorite music, the Notorious B.I.G. <laughs> Favorite sports team that you have not worked for? The Detroit Lions. Yeah. The sit-down restaurant you're going to visit first when you have an opportunity to dine indoors somewhere. Oh, that's a good one. New York has a lot. I would say a sushi place in, in New York City. So anyone would be. <laughs> Your favorite comedian or comedian? Favorite comedian? Chris Rock. Okay. Uh, favorite thing about New York City? Favorite thing about New York City? I would say it's um, it's the food, but also just the spirit, the energy of it. There's a certain energy you feel when you're in the city um, that, that's hard to match. Cool. The biggest hurdle you have to overcome professionally in the next six months with your people? I, I would say feeling, figuring out a way to safely get fans back in arenas in a way that makes the players comfortable and in a way that helps teams maximize revenue. Cool. And last one, one bold prediction you would have for sports and entertainment going forward. I'll go back to, um, I would say five years from now, the idea of a virtual membership will be a common product across the industry cool well with that i look forward to it we can go back five years from now we can and we can take a look at this and listen look mike you were such a prophet at that time that's great mike taylor senior director of team marketing and business operations for the nba you've been so gracious with your time today thanks for being a guest with us here on the crowd makers my pleasure bill this was fun thank you so much for having me and uh keep it going if you enjoyed the program, please like us, share us with those you know, and hit subscribe on the podcast, and we'll let you know when another new episode is dropped. Your positive comments will help keep the Crowdmakers on the air. We'd be grateful for your five-star review. Got someone you'd like to hear as a guest on the Crowdmakers? Let us know, and we'll do our best to reach out to them. Drop us a note at info at isbi360.com. That's info at isbi360.com. Support for the Crowdmakers comes from ISBI 360, the first and only digital training network for sports and entertainment professionals. Check out the two-minute demo at isbi360.com slash demo. That's isbi360.com slash demo. Building a better team starts with better training. Our chief engineer of the Crowdmakers is Ken Marinelli. Sean Quinn is our director of operations. Mark Yazowitz is the digital platform guru. And the executive producer of The Crowdmakers is Doug Quinn. I'm Bill Gertine. Until next time, thanks for listening and so long for now. This is The Crowdmakers on the C-Suite Radio Network.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.